The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. Well, it's a new year, and I don't know how you plan to celebrate. I looked into some ways that people celebrate uh, for the new year, and I was kind of intrigued by what I discovered. In Siberia, they have a tradition to dive into a frozen lake holding on to a trunk that's just under the water's edge. I'm glad I'm not in Siberia. In a traditional festival in Burma, people splash water on one another to start the new year as purified souls. Kind of interesting. In the Philippines, homeowners open all the doors and windows on New Year's Eve in order to allow negative energy to leave and good energy to come in. Spanish tradition holds that eating 12 grapes just before the clock chimes midnight will bring good fortune for all 12 months of the coming year. Residents in Johannesburg, South Africa throw old appliances and furniture out their windows representing the old adage, out with the old and in with the new. (laughs) What a scene. Brazilians wear white clothing, a custom meant to bring good luck for the upcoming year. This is often accompanied by a trip to the beach to throw flowers into the sea while making a wish. Remember, they're south of the equator, right? That's why they can do that on New Year's Eve. John Newton was a pastor. Before that, he was a slave trader, as many of you know. He had a really hard time getting ordained by the Church of England. People knew his story. When he was converted genuinely to faith, he wrote a track that went all around England that described how he had been a slave trader. And he really had a hard time being ordained by the Uh, Church of England, and his wife wanted him to be ordained by them. And so eventually he got in, and uh, he pastored a small church in Olney, which was just outside of London, a small small community. And um, there he, along with some others, wrote songs as well as his preaching. And uh, I say all that to say this. Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound was a song he wrote for a New Year's Day. Isn't that amazing? Like I never saw it in that context until I read that, and then it it just meant so much. He actually didn't think it was a very good song, but in America we kind of like it, so it's been sung a lot. Have good tradition. We look back to this last year, and what a great verse or verses it was. Rejoice always, can pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And, and, and the rejoicing and the praying and the giving thanks just covers all of 2023. I mean, there's so many things that we could reflect on and give thanks for and, and rejoice in. And, and what, a, what a blessed year it's been. It was an exciting journey, and we're thankful for it. And so as we look for, to the next year coming... I chose this verse as I was led to the Spirit. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. 
And what I'm calling today's thoughts is a pathway to progress. And for 2024, this will be our desire to see that we are making progress. Now, we realize that all progress has to be spirit-led. We realize that it has to be the Spirit of God who is energizing us to accomplish real progress, not some manufactured progress that we can applaud, but something that brings the applause of heaven where they are excited about what is going on. So this word progress is a very interesting word. In the original Greek, it's prokope, simple way to uh, pronounce it, prokope. And my lexicon or dictionary says a movement forward to an improved state, progress, advancement, furtherance. It's often used in military context and secular writing of a military victory where even if they gained a few inches, they made progress. And so sometimes progress can be very hard to reach. Sometimes it's not. But uh, Paul experienced progress. He uses the word a couple times in his letter to the church at Philippi. And when he writes this, you, you know that he is imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. There's our word, prokope. The gospel is advancing. And he goes on to describe this. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. Imagine this. He's in prison and all those guards have to listen to him. And to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. It was because he preached the gospel that he was put in chains in Rome. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now he goes on to say, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, and, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition and not sincerely, supposing, get this, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. What an incredibly mature attitude for the apostle to have. He was such a servant of God. He was such a servant of the gospel that even though he personally is suffering, and even the malign of brothers and sisters, he is still rejoicing that the gospel is advancing well, as I read on, and yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that though through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And we believe historically that he was released from this prison uh, for a time. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body convinced of this. 
I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress. There's their word again. For your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So Paul had an optimistic view of the future. He believed he would continue to bear fruit. He believed that he would see progress, even small advances in their lives and joy in the faith. It's such a mature perspective. It really is. What a, what a great way to view hardships in life and to see the advance of the gospel. I like what my prof, uh, Dr. Wearsby, said one day. He said, there's no small churches in the kingdom of God. There are no small churches. If two or three are gathered in Christ's name, Christ is with them. It's a believing group. The church is a body of believers. It's an assembly of people. And there's advance. There's something to celebrate. Jesus said it very clearly. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's building his church. There's going to be progress made. Maybe small, maybe large, maybe revival comes. The word church only appears three times in the Gospels. This is one of them. It's the first time. It also appears in Matthew 18. And the church isn't a building. It's an assembly of people who are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And the word I will build, the word build is also translated in other places, edify. So he not only builds it, he sustains his believers. And he does that primarily now through the word and through the ministry of the Spirit of God and through the ministry we have to each other. And so he, he wants to see progress. So one writer says it this way, church is in a hospital. <laughs> you know, we minister to both healthy and sick. And it's not a museum to admire. And, and it certainly is not a warehouse just to store things. The church is a transforming organism. Do you get it? We're living. We're alive. The Spirit of God lives in us. And transformation is now possible through the gospel, through the advance of the gospel. That's why when we wrote this mission statement some years ago, we made it very plain. We invite all generations and all cultures to share life together that all might be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. That's what we're seeking for. Transformation. Not reformation. That's what you do for yourself when you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Transformation takes God. It takes the Spirit of God. It takes the body of Christ to see lives really transformed. And sharing life together, life is capitalized because we believe that there are four core values that will help us do this. Loving God and loving others, instruction in the Word of God, fellowship with one another, and evangelism. We see those things as what will actually produce this transformation that we're seeking as a church. And we put the connects up because this is kind of the way we hope it happens. Connect with Christ. It begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then connect in community, which means not the community outside, but the community inside. Other believers, the, we connect in community. And then we connect to the culture that has yet to meet Jesus Christ. And this is our calling. This is what we will do. And Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to win the victory. But he is. And we're part of this. That's what's so exciting. That's why, you know, it just made sense that we would talk about 
making progress. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Well, what is it, what is required of us to make progress as a faithful disciple-making church. Now, that's probably worth at least three days of teaching, but we're not going to be here for three days. So let's tear the verse apart and see what we find. First, it will take diligence. Be diligent in these matters is the way the uh, NIV translates the statement. The word diligence means to work with care, to improve. It also means... To meditate. So if you put it all together, you get the picture that it's sincere thought and meditation, then put it in into practice. That with, that's what really brings diligence. That's what brings the fruit of diligence. And in this passage in 1 Timothy, um, Paul is exhorting the young pastor, and, and he talks about the things that he's to be diligent about. Uh, command and teach these things. That's verse 11. So his teaching needed to be done diligently. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Your model, how you live, is important. It needs to be given diligence. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Isn't that amazing? The public reading of Scripture. They didn't have a lot of Scripture. They had the Old Testament, which is primarily what they used, and they had some letters that had been passed around, but the public reading of Scripture was to be something that was, he was to be diligent about, along with teaching and preaching. And do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So really, that's the umbrella statement. Use your gifts. And I say that to you, brothers and sisters. Use your gifts. My goal is to see you reach your fullest potential in Christ. And we do that by exercising our gifts that God gave us and, and walking with Christ. And we make progress every time somebody makes a little progress personally. We make it corporately as well, right? I mean, this, is, this really makes such good sense. And I'm so glad God led me to these words. It, it, it reminds me that of, of Romans 12. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others." You belong to each other. Do not forget that. You belong to each other. You look at, oh, I need to belong somewhere. Here. Here. You belong right here. Hallelujah. We have different gifts, <coughs> excuse me, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And I don't think that's a complete list. There's all kinds of ways God in his spirit ministers through us to each other and to this community. But all of this will take diligence. It has to be intentional. It's also going to take devotion. He says, give yourself wholly to them. 
It's not a half-hearted kind of idea. It's wholehearted devotion. The precise word, uh, the New American Standard says, be absorbed in this. The New Living Translation says, throw yourself into these tasks. And it's a present command, so that means it's an ongoing command. This never ends. You keep throwing yourself wholly into it. You keep giving yourself wholly to it. You're to discharge all the duties of your ministry, he'll tell Timothy, using the same language in the second letter. And it reminds me of the church. They were devoted. The early church was in a hostile city, (laughs) Jerusalem. People were not too pleased with them on Pentecost and subsequently, but they devoted themselves to four priorities. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, which I take to mean celebrating the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And, And with the basis of those devotions, God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. That's verse 47 of the same chapter. It's amazing. So it's going to take some diligence. It's going to take devotion. It's going to take doctrine. (coughs) The next verse says, watch your life and doctrine closely. The word doctrine is simply the word teaching. It appears 15 out of 21 times in the New Testament in what we call the pastoral letters. The letters Paul wrote from prison to preachers. Timothy and Titus by name. And so 15 times this word teaching shows up. And it's oral, it's written, it's their lifestyle. And and he says, you know, you need to pay careful attention to this. You need to watch yourself. Examine yourself is the way he says it in 2 Corinthians. Self-examinations are good for us. It's, It's not healthy to be too introspective, but so, you know, self-examination before the Lord with your Bible open, these are good practices for us. And it takes sound doctrine. Um, Paul, or James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. He's just being honest about it. But teaching is so important. And, and what we say through the words is, is so important. Now, Uh, Some of you wouldn't know this man, but the 4th century bishop of Constantinople was a man by the name of John Chrysostom. And John Chrysostom was a pastor in Constantinople in an important time. Constantine had made it legal to meet as believers. The first 300 years of the church, it was illegal to do so. But he made it legal. And so the church at Constantinople is a very important church. Now, John Chrysostom was called Golden Mouth. He was such an effective preacher. And so let me tell you how he looked at this. He he had four characteristics to his preaching. First of all, he was biblical. I I remember my professor in seminary saying, keep your finger in the text. You know, some guys are really good at skyscraper sermons. One story on top of another. But honestly, that's not why you came here. You came here to hear the word of God. Keep your finger in the text. It needs to be biblical. Secondly, he, he said, he interpreted scripture very simply. He, in Alexandria, North Africa, they were seeing all kinds of allegories. They were... It was crazy what they were saying. 
But John in Constantinople, he's just keeping it simple. And many times the simplest understanding is the truth. He also made very good moral applications of the scriptures. It wasn't just, this is what it means, this is how you're to apply it in your life. When you look back at his sermons, it's amazing. You see the whole culture of that fourth century church through his applications. And um, finally, he was fearless. He just said, this is what the word of God says, you know, and he was fearless in proclaiming the word of God. It's interesting. Luther was the same way. Many centuries later in the Reformation, Martin Luther used to preach the same way. Exposition is what we call it. Just teaching scripture. And um, Luther preached four times every Sunday. Four times. I did it last week and just about died. But he did it four times every Sunday. And he also had two-week series of teaching doctrine, where he would just concentrate on doctrine. And um, a Calvin, similar. Calvin preached in the morning in Geneva on the New Testament, and he preached in the weeknights on the Old Testament. And all of his commentaries basically come from his preaching. So we say we will keep sound doctrine. This is important. We're going to make doctrine something we give ourselves wholly to because we know that diligence and devotion and doctrine and determination will make progress. Persevere in them, he says in verse 16. It's a great word. It's a very simple word. It means remain in. Remain in these things. It's the same verb Jesus used when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me. Remain in me. Abide in me. And that's the same word that he uses here. And, and it's very clear that we need to be determined I love 1 Corinthians 15, 58. At the end of all this discussion about the resurrection and, and the great celebration, the re resurrection of Christ, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Determination is worth it. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. And so when we look at all of this, we realize that as we look at these verses, the final result will be our great delight in 2024 or any year, any lifetime. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Hallelujah! There's nothing more glorious than that, to experience eternal life here on the earth, to have salvation. Ah, those peace things that we looked at last week, you know, the peace of God and peace with God, and to have that salvation, but also to give it away, to see that happening in other people's lives. That, that is such a thrill. That will help us get up in the morning. Hallelujah. And this is what God has called us to. This is not rocket science. It's very simple. And I think sometimes we make it more complicated than we should. And when we return to Mark, and we'll be there next week, right? We're getting back to the gospel of Mark. Remember, Jesus is the servant on his mission, on the mission to see souls saved. And uh, he did so in small groups, in middle-sized groups, in large groups, and that's part of the reason why we do it. He had a very simple strategy. 
And so did Tim Wakefield. <laughs> See, I, you knew I had to get a baseball illustration in somehow. Even though it is football season. He's a Red Sox. You're right. I adopted the Red Sox when I lived in New England, and I know I have to apologize to everybody I offend by that. But Wakefield was an infielder who made himself into a pitcher. And when the Red Sox finally lived down the curse of not winning a World Series, he was a key part of it. He died this past year. He was 57 years old. He died of cancer. Most people didn't even know he was sick. He didn't tell a lot of people about it. But he said this, never forget where you came from. Be a mentor to others. He also said in, in a quote, he said this, I've also learned that it doesn't matter how much money you've made, how big your house is, or what kind of car you drive. What matters most is, did you make a difference in someone else's life? And, and that's, that's what Jesus did. That's what he taught his apostles to do. He had a very simple strategy, and, and we're not going to go into this in detail now, but come and see. That was the evangelism phase. This is the first five chapters of the Gospel of John. Just come and see. You don't ask people who don't know Jesus yet to go into a deep Bible study. You just say, come and see. Come and see. Check it out. See. See if this is real. And that's what Jesus did for about five months. And he took them to a wedding as an example, and, and change the water into wine. That's one of the things that he did. So that phase, then follow me. At some point, he challenged them, come and follow me. And it was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they left everything, and they started following him. They made that commitment. They are going to follow him. They believe he's the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ, and they're going to follow him. And that's what we call people to. And then for about the next nine months or so, maybe a little longer, he taught them the basics. He taught them how to pray. He taught them how to read the Bible. He taught them how to witness. He taught them how to be together. All these basic things. What you learn in phase two, follow me, you've practiced for the rest of your life. Right? You practice for the rest of your life. That's a beautiful phase, but it only lasts about nine months. For the last two years of Jesus' public ministry, be with me, Jesus is enlisting his apostles into ministry. Now, this is something that too many churches miss out on. They never let anybody do anything. Listen, when you go out into ministry and you start serving, will you make some mistakes? Yes. Do you need somebody there to encourage you? That's all right. Go again or find something else. This is the beauty of enlisting. This is what discipleship's about. And it's such a beautiful thing. It's such an exciting thing to see God doing things through others that you could never accomplish alone. But together, we can accomplish these. And it's such an important phase because we are becoming disciple makers. Right? We're not just disciples ourselves. We're learning how to reproduce ourselves and our faith in others. That's that remain, be with me. And then remain in me is basically his last sermon from John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then the prayer in 17, John 17, where he is just telling them, for the rest of your lives, remain in me. Remain in me. And then that's where he emphasizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit because he's going to leave and they're going to be now working as the Holy Spirit lives in them. Now, you know, you look at 
what the early church did, and you're like, wow, it's so amazing. The same Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost is here today. He's living in us. And so we can make progress. It may not look just like it does in the book of Acts, but whatever it is, it's real progress. And it's done by God working in us and through us. And we can be that most effective disciple-making church we can be. That's the goal. That's what we want to be. And God will help us to do it. Let me close with a quote from F.B. Meyer, another British preacher. It is a mistake to be always turning back to recover the past. The law for Christian living is not backward, but forward. Not for experiences that lie behind, but for doing the will of God, which is always ahead and beckoning us to follow. Leave the things that are behind and reach forward to those that are before. For on each new height to which we attain, there are the appropriate joys that befit the new experience. Don't fret because life's joys are fled. There are more in front. Look up, press forward. The best is yet to be. Hallelujah. And so we will seek to make progress individually and corporately. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Dear Father, thank you for a wonderful year. Thank you, Lord, for the prospect of a year to come. And we do pray, Father, that we will make real progress. Progress that you will celebrate in heaven. Progress that when we get to the Bema seat of Christ, we will all celebrate together. And our brothers and sisters from around the world will say, we're so thankful what happened in Centennial at Fellowship Community Church in that season. Thank you for our missionaries and those who are serving you around the world. We pray for their progress as well. And Father, please, impress this upon us that we will be diligent that we will remain devoted that we will seek and teach sound doctrine and that we will show the determination so that we can celebrate with great delight amen and amen you've been listening to audio from fellowship community church in centennial colorado If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.